In John's Gospel, Jesus says that he is the resurrection and the life. What does that mean? How does he prove it? Well, we're going to spend some time in that gospel over the next few weeks here on this podcast as I play you some of the sermons I've given at my church on the topic. So let's dive into John now and see what he has to say. Where do you find your glory? On the mantelpiece of your life, what is front and centre? It tends to be the first thing that we talk about, doesn't it, when we're given half a chance? For a lot of people, that will be their job, or it might be their family. How about us as a church? Where do we find our glory as Christchurch Hemel? Is it the number of children we have on a Sunday morning? That's a good thing, isn't it? Is it our coffee, James? Good coffee. Thanks for that. Well, this evening, John 12 shows us true glory as the king arrives on the scene. So we're going to see this king. Have a look down at verse 12. We've moved on another day since the feast in Jesus' honour that we saw last week. And a large crowd has assembled in Jerusalem. And what is it they've come to see? Well, we're told that they've come to see Jesus. And not just to see him, they're looking to welcome him. But this is not just an ordinary welcome, as verse 13 indicates. They took palm branches and they went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Now, palm leaves or palm branches for a Jewish person are like chocolate eggs for a British person. As soon as you think chocolate egg, you imagine Easter, brilliant. Well, for the Jewish people, when they think palm leaves, they think of the Feast of Booths. That might not have come to your mind straight away, but that's back in Leviticus 23, where we find God telling the Israelites to wave palm leaves around as they live in temporary shelters. They're to do that to remember that they were slaves in Egypt and God had saved them, God had rescued them. So each year, the Jewish calendar would remind them of that. But even more recently in their history, for these people here, those palm leaves have been used to celebrate the saving of the Jewish people by the Maccabean family. Now, that's a family who were in between the Old and the New Testament who had saved Israel from their foreign oppressors. So when these people are waving palm branches around, they're doing more than just waving any old objects. These people are saying something. They're saying that Jesus has come to save them possibly in military might, as had happened previously. And that's why they shout what they shout in verse 13. Hosanna, meaning save. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a quote from Psalm 118. We don't have time to look there now. But that's a psalm that speaks about God saving his people. Blessed is the king of Israel, explicitly linking that saving to God's coming king, the Messiah. So what would you expect Jesus to do with that? Is Jesus that king? Well, in verse 14, Jesus seems to agree with them. And so he finds himself a donkey. Jesus is saying to the crowd, yes, you have it right. I am the king that's come to save you. And in doing so, he chooses to fulfill another Old Testament prophecy. 
And this time that it comes from the book of Zechariah, chapter 9. John points it out to us in verse 15. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. So as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he's saying, yes, the king is here. That's something to be proud of, isn't it? That's, that's quite glorious, isn't it? The king that the Jewish people have been waiting for is finally here. And there's an amazing fanfare to go with it. I think if we were there at the time, we would definitely get behind that. I'm sure many people would get behind that Jesus. Well, not the Pharisees. Notice them again in verse 19. Due to the response of the crowd, they're not happy. See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Jesus' appeal to the crowd seems to be growing day by day and only makes the Pharisees more agitated. See, this is getting us nowhere. Leaving Jesus to carry on isn't really helping their cause. Literally, that phrase means we're doing no good. That's John's irony again. We saw that last week. They're saying more than they know, aren't they? They've shown to be no good. They are doing no good. They're morally bankrupt. And what's the result? Well, it's exaggeration from the Pharisees here, but again, they know more than they know again. Look, the whole world has gone after him. And as we're about to see, the whole world has gone after him. Because in verse 20, we're introduced to some Greeks. Or you could say people from the world. And in verse 20 to 36, we'll see what sort of king Jesus will be. But before we get there, something's not right. Did you spot it? Something's not right. Something's, something's missing in this passage. Well, actually, it's not missing. I just blitzed over it. John stuck verse 16 in there. He's put verse 16 into the mix, which is odd when you stop and think about it. This story would have carried on like we just did without it. That doesn't need to be there, does it? It just just sticks out. John says, verse 16, at first, the disciples did not understand all this. All that's been going on before with the crowds and the donkey, they just don't understand it. Now, I, I don't think that means that the disciples know less than the crowd. The crowd seem to have correctly interpreted Psalm 118. They've correctly interpreted Zechariah 9. And that's what this verse says. John says these things had been written about him, so it's all true. So what is it then that the disciples don't understand? What is it that they're not getting? Well, it's how this king is going to be glorified. As John says there, verse 16, they can only piece these things together after Jesus has been glorified, after Jesus has gone to the cross. They know that Jesus is on his way there, And at this point in the story, they just can't put the two pieces together. How can Jesus say he's the saving king, whilst at the same time be on his way to die? The king is here. Question mark. In fact, we've already had it hinted that Jesus may not be the king that people are expecting. That quotation from Zechariah 9 that we started to see back in verse 15, indicates that there is more than just a donkey rider to come. The very next verse, up here on the screen, says that as the king comes, God is going to take away the chariots of Ephraim, the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He's going to proclaim peace 
to the nations. His rule is going to extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And as Jesus agrees that he is the king that Zechariah was pointing towards, is it a coincidence that a group of people from the ends of the earth turn up? I don't think so. It appears that that very event, the, the Greeks turning up in verse 20, prompts Jesus to announce that his hour has come. If we've been following John, we know that his hour is what John's been building towards. It's the climax of what Jesus has come to do, what this king has come to do. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So how then will the Son of Man be glorified? Well, Jesus explains it in verse 24. Very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now, when I was growing up, the church I grew up in was famous to all the school children around. In the grounds were massive horse chestnut trees. Each year, many children would come to my pastor's door and knock, on the, knock there and ask for the seeds from the trees, otherwise known as conkers. For some reason, it evades me now when I think back on it, we'd meet on the playground the very next day and compare our conkers. Now, I had the advantage because I was able to go in and get them myself, the very best. So I'd go home with the most amazing brown, shiny conkers. They'd be pride of place in my parents' home, at least to me. The mystery was always how they disappeared, but to a nine-year-old, that didn't really matter. To my friends, I had the best conkers around. They were the pride of place. But the thing is, if you set a seed on a shelf, it's a bit pointless. It looks pretty until it's thrown in the bin, but that's about it. It doesn't do anything, does it? If you were to plant that, though, if you were to plant a seed, it would produce many more. That was far too long game for my nine-year-old brain, though. And that's what Jesus seems to be getting at here. In order to be glorified, in order to accomplish the saving that his people really need, Jesus has to die. If Jesus doesn't die, no one will be saved. That's how the king is truly going to save his people. And that saving is far more than just release from the Romans. As Lazarus has literally just shown us, it's real rescue from sin and death. And that mindset follows on in verses 25 to 26. It's important to remember Jesus hasn't changed what he's talking about. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honour the one who serves me. You need to get this right. This is not saying that you can't love anything in this world. That's not what it's saying. Because Jesus has loved in John's Gospel so far. So that's not what John's getting at. Jesus has loved Lazarus, hasn't he? He hasn't stopped Mary from pouring out expensive perfume on his feet. He hasn't rebuked those crowds from cheering for him. But Jesus hasn't made those things the ultimate. He's not saying, I love this so much that I never want this to end. He doesn't use the crowd to prevent his death later on. He could have done that. But he's living, as we see here, for his father's glory. He's living to die. And anyone who follows him will do the same. By following Jesus in living to die, 
in not making anything here and now the ultimate. That's the person, the person who does those things, verse 26, that Jesus says the Father is going to honour. That's where glory is found, in following the King. And Jesus doesn't suggest that living that way is easy. Sometimes we make it sound that way, don't we? But we don't want to ever get the impression that following Jesus is easy. We never want to make that the case. Because Jesus says it will be painful, verse 27. Living this way is not easy at all. But there are massive results for Jesus living the way that he did. Have a look at verses 31 and 32. Firstly, Jesus' death is going to judge the world. From an outside perspective, that looks the wrong way around, doesn't it? It's Jesus who is being judged by the world. It's Jesus who's being executed by the world. But when you stop and think about it, Jesus' death does judge the world. As we saw this morning, as the only one and only son of God, the one with no stain of sin, as that song we sang this morning said, Jesus' death is the only death that will satisfy God's right demand. It takes Jesus' death to pay for all the sin we commit. So as Jesus dies for sin, it judges the world by showing how big a deal sin really is. And through Jesus' death, the prince of this world will be driven out. The ruler of this world, Satan, he's talking about. The final blow is paid to him through Jesus' death. The battle has been won. And when Jesus, when he's lifted up from this earth, he's going to draw all people to himself. As Jesus is nailed onto a cross and raised on high, he's going to show once and for all that he is the king of the world. As his subjects are brought from the ends of the earth as they come here. That's what sort of king Jesus is. That's the saving that Jesus has come to do. He's not going to save from Roman oppressors. He's got a much bigger thing to do than that. He's going to save from sin and death, which is a much bigger oppressor than any Italian army can be. So what are we to take from that? Well, John wants us to grasp Jesus' glory. You seen that all the way through? He wants us to grasp it and to marvel in it, following Jesus. So that leads me back to the question I started with. Where do we find our glory is it in following the crucified Christ because to find glory anywhere else anything other than Christ crucified is to miss what's going on to not grasp how big Jesus' glory really is when we present Jesus to other people which Jesus do we present to them the kind Jesus the wise Jesus which one do we think is more acceptable more glorious Well, any Jesus who is not crucified is about as glorious as one of my conquerors. It might look nice, but it just doesn't do anything. Instead, as he dies, we find Jesus at his most glorious, at his most kingly, as he dies to save others. In this world, that's nothing to be proud of. But if we are like the disciples back in verse 16, on this side of the cross we'll understand that that is truly what it means for Jesus to be glorified. And therefore, that will be the king we want to follow. I hope you found that helpful and edifying. 
If you have any feedback or questions, feel free to reach out to me via email. The details are in the show notes. But until next time, let's keep praising God this week.